Well, welcome back to part two of this pharmacotherapy podcast. My name is Jim Tisdale. As a scientific editor for pharmacotherapy, I have the privilege of continuing this discussion with doctors Paul Dobesh and Toby Trujillo about their paper entitled Coagulopathy, Venous Thromboembolism, and Anticoagulation in Patients with COVID-19. In part one, we discussed the pathophysiology and prophylaxis of thrombotic events. Now we'll focus our discussion on treatment. Dr. Trujillo, is there a role for fibrinolytic therapy for COVID-19 patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS? Yeah, so that's an interesting question and uh, one that was certainly uh, hotly debated uh, when uh, we had our first sort of spike of COVID-19 in the U.S. back in April and May. And as uh, Dr. Dobish uh, eloquently talked about in the pathophysiology of the disease, uh, part of this, part of the potential underlying um, reasons for the high incidence of VTE, or especially pulmonary embolism, is that we essentially almost have fibrinolytic failure. Uh, And that is most likely to occur in patients who are the sickest. So those patients in the intensive care unit who probably are experiencing a much higher degree of cytokine storm and uh, hyperinflammatory syndrome, um, there seems to be a, a reduction or a reduced level of functioning of the natural endogenous fibrinolytic system. And so early on, there were some, there was one or two case reports that looked at um, using uh, fibrinolytics in patients who were on a ventilator who were experiencing ARDS. And you know, those reports showed that, you know, there was a temporary improvement in oxygenation once the fibrinolytic was given, but they didn't really improve outcome. And these are very, very small numbers of patients. So, so really outside of a clinical trial, which there are some ongoing right now, uh, there really isn't a recommendation or a role for for routinely using fibrinolytics in patients who are experiencing ARDS uh, in COVID-19 patients. Dr. Dobesh, what is the recommended strategy for treatment of patients with COVID-19 who develop venous thromboembolism? Yeah, so the, uh, the for patients who actually do develop a VTE, their, their treatment really is not that different than that of, uh, say, a, a patient who doesn't have COVID, except the fact that uh, at least acutely, once again, when they're hospitalized, uh, DOACs probably won't play a role here. You're probably looking at, you know, an injectable transition to warfarin, uh, at least maybe while they're hospitalized, and most likely maybe just getting a, uh, you know, a low molecular heparin injection and then worrying about what you're going to do after discharge, because uh, warfarin in and of itself could be problematic. Um, and so really just kind of covering them with an injectable uh, while they're hospitalized, while they're sick. Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of transitioning then afterwards, maybe to a DOAC or, or a vitamin K antagonist, you know, that's different current guidelines recommend, you know, a DOAC is, is recommended in patients who develop a VTE event. Um, but you know, this is this special circumstance where they're, you know, hospitalized and ICU and things like that. Um, you know, it's probably going to be good just to stick with a, an injectable at that, for that, for that time period. Uh, well, my next question was going to be for uh, Dr. Trujillo, and I was going to ask if there is a role for the non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants for the management of patients with COVID-19 who develop venous thromboembolism. So what I'm understanding from your previous answer, Dr. Dobesh, is that there really is not, at least not in the initial management? Well, it kind of depends where the VT, you know, does this patient, if this patient's in the ward versus on the in the ICU. So, you know, it's a good actually to split this out. And I think, you know, Toby, me, you might agree, or you can always chime in. I think your ICU patients need to be on injectable. Patients on the ward, 
or, you know, patients who develop a VTE event from, you know, maybe they had COVID at home and developed it. I think a DOAC could still be used in those settings, uh, which is along with, with standard guidelines. I just think in the ICU patient, you're probably going to want to cover them just with an injectable and decide what to do once the uh, acuity of the patient improves. Would you agree, Toby? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my thoughts on this or my response would be that DOAC should be considered uh, in terms of managing patients, no differently than you would manage any patient with DVT or PE. Within that context, of course, you know we have patients in the ICU who are not, who don't have COVID, but are there for other reasons who develop DVTs or PEs. And in general, we don't use DOACs to manage them because of their acute nature. Maybe needs for maybe needs for procedures or whatnot. But as patients become more stable or, or transitioning towards discharge, they uh, while in the hospital, they can most likely be managed with a DOAC or direct oral anticoagulant. And the same considerations that you would apply to any other patient should take place there. So assessment of renal function, assessment of potential drug-drug interactions, uh, really as you're preparing for discharge, assessment of whether the patient can afford therapy or not. All of the same considerations that you would normally have would apply to patients with COVID-19. Dr. Dobesh, is there a role for intermediate dose anticoagulation for prevention of venous thromboembolism in COVID-19 patients? Yeah, this is this comes from some really interesting data. So let me start by saying, you know, patients who are hospitalized and on the ward, um, I think standard dose prophylaxis, you know, anoxaparin 40, unfractured heparin 5,000 three times a day is sufficient. The ICU patient, though, you know, as as Toby said, they're gonna have they have the you know more the, the inflammatory state is definitely higher in them. They the cytokine storm is more significant. Uh, the uh, fibrinolytic failure is more significant. And so, you know, some of, a lot of those numbers that, that Dr. Trio mentioned earlier about the high rates of VTE, a lot of those high rates of VTE are despite standard doses of anticoagulants for prophylaxis. So there is this thought, not once again, you know, this is an error, we just don't have randomized controlled data, but the observational data is pretty consistent that at least in, in, in you know, mechanically ventilated and ARDS and ICU patients, uh, we probably need to be looking at more anticoagulation. So things like maybe 40 twice a day, 60 once a day, or even 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. The, the prophylaxis dose of 40, mg per, uh, 40 milligrams of anoxaparin is actually based on a half a mg per kg, right? An 80 kilogram patient, you give them half, you get 40. And so a lot of patients don't weigh only 80 kilograms. And so the thought of maybe giving more prophylaxis uh, with some of those regimens is probably prudent. And uh, I would recommend that we do that in our ICU patients. Dr. Trujillo, is there a role for empiric therapeutic anticoagulation to improve outcomes in patients with COVID-19? Yeah, that's also uh, an interesting question. And I'm just, I'm, my answer is going to sort of build upon what uh, Paul just talked about with respect to considering intermediate dose anticoagulation. And I would, I would characterize the discussion around whether standard dose prophylaxis is adequate um, in patients with COVID-19 and whether or not you should increase that to, say, an intermediate dose, or in some cases, some clinicians have advocated for just empiric therapeutic anticoagulation, especially in those ICU patients where, again, they are sicker, they tend to have a much more profound hyperinflammatory state, a higher level of cytokine storm, and is and really what remains unanswered is, uh, what is the best approach? Um, I think, I think, I agree with Paul, that in those patients who are um, sicker, and I think 
one of the things that remains to be determined is how do you determine the level of acuity? Is it just ICU admission or is it some other uh, marker of, of inflammation? But uh, when that is present, where do you go next? Is it an intermediate dose of prophylaxis or is it maybe a pyrrhic therapeutic anticoagulation? So neither, neither one of these approaches is strongly advocated for uh, to date, although I would agree with Paul um, that I think the data would suggest that at least, uh, especially those ICU patients, uh, maybe considering uh, other factors like body weight uh, as well, uh, increasing beyond the standard dose of prophylaxis to at least some kind of an intermediate dose makes a lot of sense. I think there's very little in the literature to support empiric therapeutic anticoagulation in those, in those patients. Uh, and the last thing I'll only say on that is um, in patients who are in the ICU who maybe have uh, worsening pulmonary function but cannot uh, be transported to do any sort of uh, appropriate imaging study to see if there is a pulmonary embolism or not, um, those patients, it might be prudent to actually implement therapeutic anticoagulation because uh, you're not able to actually confirm whether or not this patient has a new thrombotic event, uh, but their clinical signs and symptoms might indicate that uh, that might be happening. And so in those, cases, those patients, it certainly makes sense to maybe escalate to a therapeutic dose, but from a routine standpoint, uh, absence of any uh, clinical signs that the patient might be experiencing any sort of pulmonary thrombotic event, um, it's, there's probably not a role for routinely doing that uh, in COVID-19 patients. Dr. Dobesh, how long does the hypercoagulable state persist in patients with COVID-19? Does it persist after patients no longer test positive? You know, that's a question I, you know, there probably isn't a great answer to as far as long, you know, uh, longer term measurements of, you know, interleukin-6 levels or fibrinogen levels or D-dimer levels. Um, I think the thing to realize is that the risk of VTE, though, in these patients doesn't leave once they, once they, just because they leave our hospital, right? I mean, a lot of these patients are pretty sick, as well as the fact that um, they have, sometimes they're going to have a very long recovery. And I mean, if you think about it, do we really believe because they walked out our door and into theirs that the risk of VTE has now vanished? That's not really plausible, right? I mean, there are number, there are several studies in acute medically ill patients without COVID-19 that show that there is a significant risk that's, you know, basically two thirds of all VTE events that happen after discharge happen in the first 30 days. And so with these patients, right, well, none of them were in obviously these, these trials, they would have been, right? They would have met the inclusion criteria. And once again, it has to do, and we've included these inclusion criteria within the manuscript uh, for people to be able to refer to, but, you know, it's, do they, you know, having multiple risk factors over the age of 40, you know, they're going to, they just had an acute infection. They've had elevated D-dimer levels. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that a COVID-19 patient, mo a, a fair number of them, that after they leave the hospital, that their risk is still there. And that I think that uh, 30 days of continued anticoagulation in these patients, assuming they meet the criteria that, that would have put them in one of these trials and don't have the exclusion criteria, um, I, think it's, I think it's prudent to consider a uh, 30 days post-discharge of uh, anticoagulation typically would be with the DOAC, you know, Batrixaban and Rivaroxaban are both FDA approved for this. Um, unfortunately, uh, Batrixaban is no longer commercially available. But I think that is, is something that we need to consider as clinicians, that just because they're leaving our door, that risk, a high risk of VTE hasn't just disappeared. 
Dr. Trujillo, are there evidence-based guidelines for prophylaxis or treatment of thromboembolism associated with COVID-19? Yeah, good question. So uh, a number of organizations or societies have put out what I would call guidance documents um, related to really the prevention and mostly towards the prevention, but also some to the treatment of uh, thromboembolism in COVID-19 patients. Some of those societies include the American College of Chess Physicians, or so the chess guidelines have put out uh, some recommendations in this realm, Uh, American Society of Hematology, International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, as well as the Anticoagulation Forum. They all sort of arrive at sort of the same place in terms of all hospitalized patients should receive pharmacologic prophylaxis. There are some slight differences, though. We highlight those in the paper or in the manuscript uh, in terms of the role of, say, maybe intermediate dose uh, prophylaxis, as well as whether or not uh, post-discharge prophylaxis might be recommended or not. Um, the anticoag forum guidance document, as, as well as the, uh, the, the CHESS guidelines, uh, provide a little bit more comprehensive recommendations for prevention and treatment of thromboembolism in patients with COVID-19. Um, so all of them, uh, again, are available. Um, the only caveat I would throw in there is that the evidence is continuing to evolve. So I, again, call these more guidance documents where there, it, within them there is probably a lot of expert opinion, although that expert opinion probably makes uh, sense in terms of what they're recommending. But uh, the evidence is something that is coming. There are a large number of randomized controlled trials that are underway uh, specifically to try and answer the question of whether, uh, whether or not um, standard dose uh, pro- pharmacologic prophylaxis or intermediate dose or even uh, empiric therapeutic anticoagulation is the way to go in these particular patients. The full article is published in the November 2020 issue of Pharmacotherapy, and I thank you both for sharing this additional insight with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim.